Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Down the block, Andrew John. Inside for Elba. Elba will score. Elba will score. Newcastle has won. Welcome back to the Rugby League Guru Podcast. Today we're going to dive into the Manly Seagulls, their greatest team of the NRL era. We haven't done one of these in about a week or so. It's been a long innings. Clarky, welcome back, mate. What's doing? Hey, Gary. Good to be back. You're right. It has been a while, but very excited to jump into this Manly side. How's uh, life up there for, for you, mate? Obviously, I'm in Sydney in lockdown. What's it looking like for you? Canberra's not too bad. We've just got to wear a mask everywhere we go, and it's cold. <laughs> Always cold, isn't it? It is. It is absolutely always cold here. It's probably the most miserable um, thing about living in Canberra, I would say. Mate, uh, this Manly Seagulls side, obviously a team that during the 90s was so dominant, but of course, this team, we've picked it from 98 onwards, the NRL era. So essentially the three years before that, they were in three grand finals. They won one premiership, an incredible side then. But obviously from 98 onwards, uh, they didn't win a premiership until uh, 2008. They went back again in 2011 and just outside of those two, they won in 07 and 13. There was that real core group of sort of late 2000s, early 2010s of just absolute stars that have probably dominated this side for us, haven't they? Yeah, you're right. They probably dropped off a little bit um, as the NRL era started, but then came back more around the 2010s, a little bit before, a little bit after. And like you said, they just had that core group of players. And the biggest thing about why Manly were able to be so dominant was players were actually taking pay cuts because they wanted to be remembered as a successful team. Um, and I remember there was actually a, a lot of talk around that time. Um, Anthony Watmo come out against Daily Share Evans because he refused to take that pay cut like so many of them had done before. And I thought that was a really, really interesting time there for the Manly Club. Mate, it's obviously something that I think a lot of a lot of the really good teams do now. Like, probably not as bad, like probably not as heavily as what Manly used to do it or as publicised, but I have no doubt that there are still guys that are taking pay cuts, that are taking less money to be in a Melbourne Storm system or a Sydney Rooster system. I just don't think it's been promoted the same sort of way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we sort of see it even now, like players like Dal Finucane, he's done his time at Melbourne, he's probably been on unders, but now if he wants to, he's got offers from, you know, half the NRL, he can go and make that big money. 
We saw someone like Tim Glasby do it. Um, we've seen players from the Roosters do it in the past. It's, you know, you're almost taking one step backward to take two steps forward in the future. I guess the big difference is that so many of these guys, they chose not to leave at any point. They started their career there, and most of them, they finished their career there. It sort of all went to shit there. It's sort of at the midpoint of the 2010s. But a lot of these guys, they stayed together for so long and were so successful. We've obviously got a few guys that are also featuring from the current team. You've actually got more than me, and this is the first time that we've disagreed on a selection. And when I say disagreed, I think these are two guys that are so close to being evenly matched. It is in the halfback, so I'm sure people can guess how we went there. But I think this is sort of, I don't want to say the word exception that we've made for this rule, but I, I just think that these two, Jeff Toovey, Daly Cherry Evans, they were just so close. It was so hard to make a decision here, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it was. It's probably one of those ones where there's really no right or wrong answer. When you're selecting your greatest NRL side for the Manlings, they've been blessed with so much talent over the years that we've also got a few notable players that we couldn't find room for. But you know, there's a genuine argument to be made that you could easily switch in and swap a few players here and there without any questions and also without being wrong. Mate, of course, it has been a little while since we've done one of these. Can you remind us of the criteria for this? Absolutely. So for our listeners, guys, this is how the Guru and I have made up our squad. Selection criteria, rule number one. Players are selected where they played their best football. Um, so an example for that, um, in this case, um, Anthony Watmo wouldn't be selected for the Eels um, as he moved there towards the end of his career. Um, number two, players must have played in the NRL era, which began in the 1998 season onwards. Um, number three, your team structure must make sense. Um, example, we wouldn't carry four wingers or four fullbacks on the bench. Uh, number four, selected players are assumed to be in their prime. So that's another big one, keeping in mind that um, a player, when they're at their absolute peak, if they're selected in this side, that's the form that they're carrying. That's what we're considering. And number five, guys, of course, this list is subjective. It is the guru and my own personal opinion. So um, no data, no research, nothing behind that, guys. Just our take on rugby league. Um, and we're glad that you're here to listen. Now, mate, let's kick off with the fullback jersey. And for me, halfback was probably the hardest one. But this one, by far and away, the second hardest, of course. The Manly Seagulls, they've had two champion fullbacks over the last 10 years or so. Probably last 15 years, realistically. Now, Brett Stewart. And, of course, the modern-day superstar, Tom Travojevic. Now, picked at his absolute peak. I mean, you could argue that we should have had Turbo here. We've gone for Brett Stewart, and I think it sort of came down to the fact that Tom Travojevic, we've seen that he can play on the wing and be so dominant there. Brett Stewart didn't play as much football. For me, I just couldn't leave Snake out of this side. Uh, we couldn't leave him out. And as our rule says, as long as the team structure makes sense, then um, it is fine in this instance. You know, Brett Stewart was known as the Prince of Rookie for a reason. You know, it's interesting that we made this list probably three weeks ago, I'd say, and since then, Tom Travojevic has had probably the best three weeks you could have in rugby league. I think he's, you know, almost had at least three try involvements in every game he's played, including Origin, which is insane. But Brett Stewart, I think people forget how good he was just because he did have those few years where he was injured. But the thing that really impressed me was when he returned from injury, there was no sort of, um, I guess, uh, a period where he would, you know, be building back his confidence or form he would come back as the exact same player. And he's probably one of those players that, again, I know we've spoken about it in the past, being within the Cameron Smith era for hookers, well, being within the Billy Slater era for fullbacks. If Billy Slater never existed, Brett Stewart would probably be remembered as the greatest fullback from his era um, at his peak, absolutely unstoppable. And that's why we've put him at fullback for our side. And I think we've got to remember that for the Manly Seagulls, I mean, Brett Stewart... 07, 08, 2011, 2013. He was in four grand finals in, what, six or seven years? Like, that is simply incredible. And it's not like he was a passenger in this side. He was a key cog 
in this team throughout the entire time. Always a bit of an unorthodox sort of character. He sort of reminded me of like a, almost like a Jason Nightingale, but playing fullback. Everything looked a little bit different. He sort of reverse spiraled when he passed. It was all a little bit unorthodox, but good God, he was just such a good player. His instincts were unreal, especially when he'd go down that right edge and he'd be able to link up with Jamie Lyon and with Glenn Stewart. Just an unbelievable footballer, Snake. Yeah, absolutely. Unorthodox, but it worked for him and it worked so well. Like you said, linking up with his brother. Um, obviously, Manly have been so blessed because now there's another set of brothers that link up with the club. And it reminds you a lot of how Brett and Glenn play, but absolute champions, major roles in the 2008 and 2011 premierships. Without a doubt, you know, 2008, they probably might have won without him, but 2011, he was absolutely key. So, um, Brett Stewart, what a player. For me, mate, I think one of my greatest highlights of Brett Stewart, there was a try that he scored. I believe it's against the Tigers, and it's being played at Brookvale Oval. And you see Matt Orford, he goes down the left edge, and he puts in like this banana kick bomb back to the sticks, and the ball bounces up on its point. And Brett Stewart came through and just took the most unbelievable catch to win that game. He was just one of those clutch moment guys, wasn't he? Yeah, he always stepped up to the plate in the big games, whether he was playing for Australia, New South Wales, or the Sea Eagles phenomenal player and I can't stress enough that you know if Billy Slater never existed if Billy Slater was never born for me Brett Stewart probably is the best fullback um, of the last sort of generation slash era of rugby league Mate, let's dive into our wingers. And obviously, we've already mentioned we're going to pick Turbo on the wing here, which uh, possibly a little bit controversial, but I just, he's another guy that you cannot leave out of this team. And let's be honest here, when he did come into first grade and he was playing on the wing, he was just unstoppable. You can't leave him out of this side, can you? You can't leave him out of this side. I mean, he was, he needs to be here somewhere. Uh, we'll get to our centers soon, but they were also, you know, really, really handy. So the wing just made sense for us in our lineup. I think he scored a few hat-tricks playing on the wing there for Manly when he first came in as well. And I remember, that, although this is not NRL, it was under-20s, I think he ran for like 400 metres or something once in an under-20s game and scored four or something tries. It was absolutely unheard of at the time. Really, it still is. So turbo on the wing for us. Um, just going back to the team structure there, really, for our listeners, we had to fit him and Brett in, and this was the best way for us to do so, and it just makes sense. Mate, our other winger was, of course, of course, the Wolfman, David Williams, and a really interesting career to look back on. I mean, he made his debut in 2008 for the Manly Seagulls. They, of course, lost the grand final in 07. He makes his debut 08. Um, I, a guy that I had on my podcast during last year was Michael Barney, and he he actually got injured at the start of that season, and it gave David Williams an opportunity to get back into the side, and uh, he never looked back, mate. I mean, at the end of that season... He played for the Kangaroos. He's played two games for the Kangaroos, scored four tries. The next year, he went and played State of Origin, two games, two tries. He was unbelievable when he burst onto the scene, Wolfman. Burst onto the scene is probably the best way to put it because before that, we never really heard of David Williams. He did play juniors for Parramatta, but never really a standout in the under-20s or anything like that. So no one, you know, really had big raps on him coming through. He just, you know, oh, we've got some injuries, this guy's debuting. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's scoring in the grand final. He scores 14 tries out of the 20 games that season. And, you know, he had an absolutely hot season, absolutely burst onto the scene. Made an incredible performance from him in that grand final to win there. Um, I think he really was one of the unsung heroes for a long time. Obviously, he was one of the try scorers in uh, Manly's 40-0 drumming of the Melbourne Storm. But, mate, the, the rise of him was so quick, and it was almost as quick as the demise. It's like he just fell off the side of the earth, wasn't it? Yeah, injuries really, really played a part in that, though, I believe, which is really unfortunate for the Wolfman because when he was fully healthy, he was one of the best finishers. And, you know, you go back to when he debuted 2008, we were in a period where wingers weren't really sure what their mould is. 
Do we still want the five Zippy guys? Do we want the big Wendell Taylors? The, the winger that we have today, as we know, is a combination of all of those. Um, but one of the key things of a modern winger in today's game is their finishing ability. How to get the ball down when there's three men on you and you're being driven over the sideline. I remember one try with Wolfman. I think he had Greg Inglis on him, which is obviously massive. And he was somehow able to get the ball down and score. So when you go back to that time, 2008, wingers weren't really known for the incredible finishes that we see today. And Williams was one of those wingers that, you know, really brought that into effect, the incredible um, over-the-sideline put-downs and anything of the like. I think, mate, the other thing I love about us selecting Wolfman here is that he was an out-and-out winger. I mean, you never really saw him play fullback. You never really saw him play centre. He was just a genuine winger. And, you know, as a lot of these teams go, when you pick the best of the best, you end up picking guys like Tom Trevojevic who have played a bit of fullback, but you put them out on the wing, or guys that could have been wingers or centres that get in. Just an out-and-out winger for me, and he did a sensational job. Let's dive into our centres, mate. And um, I think these two picked themselves, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm going to start with the first one, Jamie Lyon. He is one of my favourite players of all time. A four-time Dallium Centre of the Year. An incredible footballer. I quite often say that he was essentially a second 5'8 on that right edge for the Manly Seagulls. It would quite often get the last tackle. And if they were sitting on, you know, 70, 80%, instead of going back to the halves, they would just go to Jamie Lyon. He had this incredible kicking game as well down that edge. It was just so dangerous, especially when you had Glenn Stewart, Jamie Lyon. It was like you had four 5'8s on the field. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable indeed. You know, he did play 5'8 there for a while, but then when Kieran Foran sort of emerged out of nowhere, um, Jamie Lyon, you know, moved out to the centres, but he, he didn't necessarily play a traditional centre role. You know, he was still very active in his, his last tackle kicks and his playmaking ability and everything like that. But he's probably one of those players that, you know, you could probably even play him in the back row potentially. He's just so talented with a unique skill set that it, uh, for me, it wouldn't really matter whether he was wearing three, six or, or 11 or 12. I think he'd do a fantastic job anywhere. I think Jamie Lyon as well, mate. I mean, I'll always remember him as being the guy that, outside of club footy, the guy that just seemingly never wanted to play State of Origin, New South Wales would make the call every year and he turned them down. And then I look at his stats and he still managed to play 10 games of Origin. Like, it's simply unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, even the way that this all sort of came about, you know, he, I believe he left the Eels and then I think he played like park footy for a while and then went over to the Super League. And, you know, when you have three years out of the NRO, you're not expected to, you know, come back at your peak, but he literally came back a better player. And, and just an unbelievable player throughout his whole career. Just the way that storyline went, I mean, he makes his debut in 2000 for the Paramount Eels, extremely young. The next year, 2001, plays 29 games, goes all the way to the grand final. A couple of years later, when he's the Australian centre, he decides rugby league's not for him, the NRL's not for him. He goes back to the country. He then goes to England. He wins the Man of Steel Award in 2005. He comes back in 07. He plays for another 10 years in the NRL. He, he essentially took three years off and he played 294 first grade games. I mean, if he would have stayed in the NRL the entire time, he's well and truly clearing that 300 game mark. An unbelievable footballer. Yeah, really, really unbelievable story. A really, really unique story. And I believe Jamie still plays for the Ballina Seagulls. I think he's their captain coach at the moment. So obviously still playing footy, still giving back to the game incredible player and that's really you know a unique story really sums up Jamie Lyon though mate another one of his centre partners that he had for a very long time he's the other one we've picked 230 games for the Manly Seagulls Steve Mattai the hitman geez he had some bone rattlers in him didn't he for me he's probably the hardest hitting centre probably the hardest hitting player I've ever seen play rugby league actually overall um, I know George Tafua is another hot ca- uh, candidate for that but I think Steve Mattai some of the hits and um, the one that obviously is you know, most prominent in people's memories is the hit on David Tyrrell. 
who's a prop and a center is shooting out of the line to put a hit like that on a prop. Um, for me, he's the hardest hitter I've ever seen play rugby league. And mate, just, you know, we obviously talk about his defense constantly, but in attack, he was a sensational player as well. Extremely underrated. Uh, I'm just having a look at his stats now. 91 career tries, just under the 100 mark. Uh, he played 230 games, so you're looking at a try, you know, just under every three games. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, really impressive. The other interesting thing is him and Jamie Lyon, um, their strike or try percentage per game is pretty even, um, which means, you know, that the, for the most part, Manly were utilizing both sides of the field. Both centers were dangerous, and that's what made this Manly side play dangerous. Having two attacking centers like Lyon and Matai, um, they're available, you know, at any play on any set. It's absolutely incredible to think about. Mate, let's dive into our 5-8 now, and a really tough one here. Obviously, Kieran Foran was right up there. He's probably one of the unluckiest guys to miss out on this side. We did go with Cliffy Lyons, though, and to be fair, Cliffy probably played his best footy before 98, but was still playing post-98, so he makes our criteria. Um, As my listeners know, one of my favorite players of all time, Cliffy. I think he's the most naturally gifted guy we've ever seen, a guy that would put away a cigarette at halftime, have a beer, then go back out and dominate and look like he's never out of first gear. An unbelievable player. Yeah, Kieran Foran, really, really unlucky to miss out. We can't stress that enough. But under our criteria that, you know, Cliffy Lyons, um, as our viewers will see on our Instagram page, we've got him as our image. He, he is there in the NRL jersey. He did play um, in the NRL era. And when you go back to our rule that players are selected at their peak, Obviously, this is no disrespect to Kieran Foran, but at his peak, Cliff Lyons was a better player than Kieran Foran. And I don't even think Kieran Foran would take that as an insult. Cliffy Lyons was, you know, one of the best 5'8s we've ever seen. Um, and we just had to have him in the side. I must say, at the same time, I, I wonder how Kieran Foran's career would have unfolded if it wasn't for all these injuries. I think that, obviously, a very different player to Cliffy Lyons, but when you look back at the start of his career, I think if it all would have gone well for him, I think he did have the potential to jump Cliffy, but... I mean, it is what it is. I just think Cliffy was just too talented to leave out of the sixth jersey, a manly legend. Mate, let's jump into the halfback role. And this is where it gets really interesting. As we said, the first time that we we have differed our opinions here, you've gone for DCE. I've gone for Jeff Toovey. Uh, and I think we should point out to the listeners that this is one that we obviously disagreed on, but we didn't really think each other were wrong realistically. I just think it's an absolute coin toss. I'll be very interested uh, to see the comments on Instagram to see what people think of this one. Mate, put your case forward for DCE. Yes, yeah, so for DCE, the reason I went with Daily Chair Evans, he made his debut in 2011, and in that season, he was named Rookie of the Year. He notched up 19 try assists. Um, he was named by the Rugby League International Federation. So just quickly, guys, that's the body that sanctions all international football. He was named the best halfback in the world in 2011. So at his peak, I know this is weird, guys, but I'm using 2011 as his peak year because of those 19 tries, just being a rookie and winning a premiership and being named the world's best halfback. From there, he's gone on to win a Clive Churchill medal, although controversial. The year after, he was named 2014 Dalian Halfback of the Year. Now, in 2015, I've got to mention this, guys, he did backflip. Um, on his deal. And I think if he had have gone to the Titans, then I'm definitely with Jeff Toovey. Um, but because he did that backflip, you know, we sort of think of him more as a manly man, uh, out-and-out manly player, I mean. Um, 2017, he became the club captain. With all that being said there, guys, we've got to go back to the criteria and the selection criteria, and it states that players are selected at their peak. And because DCE's never really had a bad season, his peak isn't too far from his worst season. And that is why, for me, it opens the door for Jeff Toobie to also be a legitimate option here at halfback. 
Mate, and I, I, it's hard to push back on anything you've said there. I, I've gone for Jeff Toovey just because, you know, he was the face of the Manly Seagulls for essentially the entire time he was there. And you know what? I could hear the argument that potentially we fall in love with the idea of Jeff Toovey because he was a smaller character. He was tough as nails. For me, I still think pound for pound, he's one of the toughest Manly players and toughest players we've ever seen of all time, to be honest with you. I think he's a guy that really sums up who the Manly Seagulls were. And obviously... During the 90s, this team was so successful. Uh, had you know, was just unreal during the 90s. They went to the 95, 96, 97. 96, they win it. He was the Clive Churchill medalist. A guy that played a number of games for the Kangaroos. A guy that played a number of games for the New South Wales Blues. And for me, where I made my decision was that if he was a Queenslander and I was able to pick my halfback for Queensland right now, and it was between DCE and Jeff Toovey, I honestly think I would probably go Jeff Toovey uh, with all due respect to DCE, but two brilliant halfbacks, and it's you know they're sort of the halfbacks that dominate these two eras uh, for the Manly Seagulls. Um, a really hard one to pick there, and of course another guy we're going to mention later is Matty Orford, who was unbelievable in the seven for the Manly Seagulls. But we'll get to him in the future. I'll tell you what I reckon that's going to be one of the hardest selections we have to make throughout this whole thing. Yeah, I definitely think so as well. Very different halfbacks as well, which makes yeah. it hard to compare them. Jeff Toobie, more of someone who took the game on, um, got the ball to him, took the line on, took the game into his own hands, whereas DC, I probably view him more as a managing halfback, someone that directs the troops, puts in the nice kicks and tries to control the tempo of the game, whereas Jeff Toobie, instead of trying to control that, he would take the game by the scruff of the neck. And I think that because they are different in that, in that um, element, it makes them hard to compare. And also a weird one for DCE that I, I guess, 2011 is his peak yep. because you think for a halfback you think that he would have given that was his first season although DCE for me is one of the best halfbacks in our game if that was his debut season you'd think he would be at a Mason Cleary level right now where it just really hasn't panned out for him he's, if anything you could almost argue DCE has gone backwards which is nuts I understand if you didn't agree with that but you know the stats are there to suggest that maybe he has and I guess, mate, the other argument to potentially support DCE as well, you look at Jeff Tooby, you look at his career, I mean, he played 160-odd games at halfback, but played a number of games at hooker, a number of games at 5'8", played about 50-odd in those positions. So you could say DCE is the more pure halfback, but, I mean, I think this is one that we could sit and argue for days and really not come to any different conclusion, to be honest with you. Two complete champions. Let's jump into the front row, mate. And uh, the first guy we've picked is a Clive Churchill medalist, won it in 2008. It's Brent Kite. Uh, I thought that day he was unreal. For a um, for a front rower to win a Clive Churchill in a 40-nil drumming, uh, just about unheard of, but he was massive through the centre third against the Melbourne Storm, who are just known for slowing down the rock and er, slowing down the ruck and dominating the middle. He was incredible. Exactly right. And when you see big blowout scores like that, generally it's going to be a back that wins the Clive Churchill or wins man of the match, no matter no matter what, whether it's a rep game or whether it's the NRL. If you have a blowout score like that, you know, it's the backs that are scoring the tries. It's the halfbacks that's setting them up. It's the fullbacks that are creating the opportunities. And they're the ones that tend to get the limelight. So for Brent Kite as a forward to have such impact on the momentum of a game and generate so much ruck speed in a grand final is absolutely incredible. To win a Clive Churchill in a 40-0 victory, I don't. I, I could confidently say we will not see another forward do that if there was to be a blowout score because we're just going towards all the backs these days and everyone who's setting it up. It is fantastic that the man in the middle that generated that momentum um, got the recognition and a very well-deserved Clive Churchill medal. 
Mate, the other front rower is a very similar story. I feel like we've already had this conversation. We obviously picked Brett Stewart at fullback, Tom Trevojevic on the wing. Jake Trevojevic, he's played the vast majority of his football in Jersey 13 for Manly. But for me right now, I think there has still always been a better 13 for the Manly Seagulls. So Jake Trevojevic, he makes it into the front row in this side. Um, just a champion of this team and a guy that we just simply couldn't leave out of our side. So we've gone for Turbo in Jersey 10. Uh, for me, obviously he's played a lot of footy in 13 and... For me, I've obviously spoken about the lock position a lot over the years and talking about comparing guys like Radley to Jason Taumalolo. For me, where the line is drawn between a front rower and a lock forward or a front rower playing in the lock forward jersey, it is Jake Trevojevic. He is the perfect combination of both of these parties, isn't he? Yeah, although Jake Trevojevic isn't out and out lock again, we had to make room for him in our starting side somewhere. Um, And I guess for the Stewart brothers, they've got the benefit of we've seen their entire careers pan out. Whereas for the Travoyevich brothers, we haven't. So by the end of both of the Travoyevich brothers' careers, it could come a time where potentially, um, you know, Tom would be named as our fullback and Jake would be our lock. But for now, we've seen what the Stewart brothers done. They brought so much success to Manly, um, and that's why they're there for now. But Ter- uh, Jake Travoyevich, sorry, he had to be there somewhere. Just a player that carries such a heavy workload for the Manly Sea Eagles, and he does it every single week. He is so effective in attack when he's ball playing and, you know, his defense is second to none in the NRL. So to have him starting at prop, although it's not his best position, um, we had no problems putting him there. And, mate, it now becomes very interesting because you've obviously got um, you, you've got the two Trevojevic brothers and when you look at what the Stewart brothers did, I mean, they went to four grand finals. They won two premierships. Uh, the Stewart brothers, obviously, they've still got plenty of time to come, but it is a lot of history to chase, isn't it? It is a lot of history because Manly, while the Stewart brothers were there, were just so dominant um, for a really long, long period. I, I think Glenn also won a Clive Churchill in one of their grand final wins. Yeah, 2011. Brett was absolutely key. There yeah. you go. And Brett was absolutely key in all of them as well. So they were never passengers. They were the Manly Seagulls. They were the reason Manly were so successful for a long period. We're starting to see the Seagulls, you know, rediscover their identity as a club this year. Um, well, we saw it last year under Des Hasler. He sort of brought that culture back that was lacking. And now we're starting to see Manly reap the rewards where they're looking very, very good so far in the 2021 season. So, you know, it will be really interesting to go back to this podcast in a year or two or maybe even longer and assess how much success the Travoyevich brothers have bought Manly. And ultimately, I think that's going to be the biggest determining factor in if they can overtake the, uh, the Stewart brothers. Tom Travoyevich, he's 24 years old. He's he's almost 25 now. Let's say he plays till he's 32, 33. That's another eight-odd years. Do you believe that they will have more than two premierships in that time? I think so, but I also believe that Daily Chair Evans is about 30. He's getting on towards the end of his career, so how they're able to replace DCE um, in the next three years or so will be really, really vital, uh, particularly also given Kieran Ford and their 5'8 is also towards the tail end of his career. You know, you can have turbo and you can have Jake doing all the work but if they don't have the right halves as we've seen in the modern games and um, you know you really will they, they really could struggle sorry uh, but the game is changing and so Des has the will have the benefit of um, you know really signing players that suit the current mold of the game with the more increased rules whereas other clubs have locked up their halves in that very long term and potentially they're not the halves they want with the rule changes so Manly will have that benefit if I had to make a prediction right here right now um, I'd say yes, just based off what I'm seeing from Turbo currently. Absolutely unstoppable. And Jake, um, also just in incredible form. I think as well, mate, the other big advantage Des will have is that when he does need to go to the market to find a seven, we know how hard it is to find a good halfback. 
I mean, his selling point is just you get to play with Tom Trebojevic. You've seen what he's capable of doing. You get to be the halfback that just directs the team around, just gives the ball to this bloke. I mean. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It would be very hard to turn down the opportunity to be the Manly Seagulls 7 if you got Tom Trevojevic doing what he's doing at the moment. Simply incredible. Mate, uh, let's move into the back row. And uh, these two guys, they picked themselves for me. We already mentioned one of them, Anthony Watmo, uh, an incredible player for the Manly Seagulls for a very long time. I just don't think we could possibly leave him out here, could we? No, you can't leave Chalk out. I mean, he was incredible there. And another one of those boys that was with Manly throughout the golden period um, joined the club in 2003 and then... You know, from 2008 to 2014, they were very, very successful years whilst he was there at Manly. A really, really destructive ball runner. And he had that offload as well. Um, he would He's one of those back rowers that um, he would suit the modern game. Um, my only concern would be his aggression potentially slipping over the mark and giving away um, penalties or head highs, etc. Um, also, a M, second rower of the year, two times. And um, a player that would play through injuries he would play whether it was rain, hailing, sunshine. It wouldn't matter what conditions, uh, what was happening. Chuck Watmau would turn up for the Sea Eagles, and I think that's why he's always going to be a Sea Eagles fan favourite. Mate, I'm just having a look at his stats now. I mean, from 2003 until 2014, for, you know, 11, 12-odd years there, he played under 20 games for the Manly Seagulls only once. Simply unbelievable. There you go. That really, really sums up his durability. Um, I'm glad that we found that stat, actually. That's incredible. And that really, really um, sums up, you know, that he would play when he was injured. You know, a lot of players would want the week off, but Chuck Walmart would not matter for him. He would, you know, play under any conditions, any injuries, and just an incredible, tough, tough, durable man. An incredible effort to play 300-plus games the way that he played the game. Unbelievable. Of course, he did play his 300th game in Parramatta Colours, which was a little bit disappointing. That obviously wasn't uh, the Chock Watmo that we were used to for his entire career. But a sensational player, a guy that we simply couldn't leave out. The guy that we chose to partner him, uh, potentially the best back row of the Manly Seagulls I've ever seen. We mentioned a number of times the 08 Grand Final, uh, that huge scoreline they won by. And, of course, I remember being out there that day and the, the moment of that grand final by a country mile was the moment where um, where Steve Menzies, he had the ball thrown back into him, he scored. I remember being at that end and it's one of the loudest noises I've ever heard. An unbelievable player, Beaver, and I mean, probably also helped the cause of Cliffy Lyons being in this team. If you're going to have one, you've simply got to have the other, don't you? Yeah, you do. They teamed up so, so well on that edge there for so many years from Manly. Like you said, the 2008 try is probably going to be the memory for Beaver for a lot of footy fans. Um, just the elation, the happiness. You could see how much it meant to him given that was his final game there for the Manly Seagulls. I think he played, oh, I want to say 500, but it could be 400. He played a ton of games when you include his Super League career also. And he was an out-and-out try-scoring back rower. So the he scored two hat-tricks in one year as a back rower. And that's never been done until this year where Dave Speeder has done it for the Titans. So that's, you know, we're talking, think of all the amazing back rowers we've had from Steve Menzies to Dave Speeder. 
and no one in between has been able to score two hat-tricks in one year as a forward. And that really sums up his attacking ability because for me, David Fiedekone is the best attacking back roller in the game. For no one to have achieved that stat since Stephen Menzies um, is incredible. And it also shows just how dominant Steve Menzies was and how fantastic his attack was for a forward. Mate, just having a look at his numbers right now, uh, obviously you mentioned close to 500 games. He played... Between 2009 and 2013, when he was in England, he played 128 games over there. He left the NRL after playing 349 games. Unbelievable. He made his debut in 1993. He retired in 2013 in England. That's 20 years of first-class rugby league. Unbelievable. Scoring 180 tries in the NRL, and then he went over to England and played for another three or four years. Just an unbelievable player to play that many games. And, I mean, we spoke about earlier that the Manly Seagulls, they sort of have two eras. They have the 90s era, which they were really dominant in. Then they have the 2000s era. This guy was part of both of them. I mean, it is mind-blowing. And to think that, you know, that dominant era of the 90s sort of started in 95, he made his debut two years before that. It's unbelievable. Yeah, you're right. 477 games, Wikipedia says, all up. Um, 952 points and you know, a ton of tries throughout all of that. It's just mental. It's just mental to think that he was a part of... When the Manly Seagulls were successful in both eras, Steve Manzies was there. You really can't say that for many players. There's not many players that are that influential to their side, but it's just no coincidence that when their team is successful and in a golden era, they are there. And I, I don't want to say it, but I do want to say it. For me, I think Stephen Menzies could be the best back row of all time. Um, all generations, all, all eras of rugby league, I think he could be considered the very, very best. Crazy to think, he, he was the Rookie of the Year in 94. He was also the Dally M's second rower of the year in 94. He won it in 95 and in 98. I think to be the Rookie of the Year in the second row is unbelievable, especially like the game was tough as nails back in the mid-90s. To be also the best second rower, unbelievable. Uh, just an unbelievable career uh, from Steve Menzies. And he's always been a champion player. He's always been a champion bloke on and off our field. Obviously doing a lot with, with, with Fox League over the last few years. And he's just been hilarious the entire time as well. It makes a guy even easier to love, doesn't it? Definitely does. You know, Hindy was my favorite player growing up. So um, I love seeing him on Fletcher Hindy. It's always awesome to see. And, you know, Stephen Menzies, he's had his funny skits with them as well. Uh, when we're able to see, you know, a little bit more of off-field personality and see that Stephen Menzies is such a fun-loving guy, it definitely, definitely makes him more likable, if that was possible. Mate, let's dive to our 13 jersey, and we have already mentioned him a couple of times, just sums up how great this guy was. One of my favourite players of all time, it is, of course, Glenn Stewart. Uh, could sort of play in the lock, could play in the back row as well, could do just about anything, could play at 5'8 if you wanted him to. Played the vast majority of his career with the Manly Seagulls, did spend a bit of time at South Sydney in the back end of his career. But that period where they were in grand finals, from 07 to 2013, I look at that and once again, this guy, he played less than 17 games once during that entire time. I mean, it's... 23, 26 games a season during that time for the Manly Seagulls. He was incredible. And you look at his stats, 203 games, 25 try, 27 tries. Mate, I would love to see a list of just try com- like try combinations or try assists that this guy had a hand in. So often you would see the Manly Seagulls score and he was the last set of hands or probably more often the second last set of hands just creating space. An unbelievable footballer. I think that he would be more suited to the game now than when he played realistically. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with that statement. I think when Glenn Stewart played, the lock forward was viewed as the third prop just a middle forward out there that would, you know, take the hit up and defend well in the middle. Um, the difference being they wouldn't have a left or right side assigned. They'd just be told, um, pop up when you need it, have your hit ups where you can, majority up the middle. But for Glenn Stewart, the thing was, at his time, lock forwards were not someone who created. You know, your spine created. But even back in that era, it was more so your halfback and your five-eighths were the creators. He was able to create opportunities and create plays. And some of those plays were out of nothing. And I think that's what really surprised a lot of defenders back then because it just wasn't, you know, in the current day, we see Victor Radley, Jake Trevojevic, um, all these forwards playmaking, and it doesn't really surprise us. But we have to think, back when Glenn Stewart was playing, especially, you know, in the first half of the 20, uh, 2000 to 2010s there, that really wasn't common for lock forwards. And so having the ability to have, you know, a tough hit-up, which he was more than capable of, but then also playmake and connect with his brother so well, who was the most dangerous attacking weapon in that side, it just made Glenn Stewart a threat every time he touched the football. I think also with this team, mate, like for, for me, when I look back, you know, the way that footy used to be, you know, beers in the change rooms after, after just, just a regular game and whatnot, this Manly Seagulls team, they were the last of that sort of side. They were last of that. We're going to party hard. We're going to train just as hard though. And for me, they sort of had that 90s attitude off the field, but they also had it on the field. They just had natural footballers everywhere. We've already spoken about, obviously, Jamie Lyon and Glenn Stewart. As you said, it, it, like the game became so structured then. And, you know, no shock, the team they had the biggest rivalry with was the Melbourne Storm. It was just an absolute clash of absolute professionalism and structure and set plays versus just natural footballers enjoying themselves off the field, going and having a beer. Like, it was just too... It really was sort of the change, the changing of the guard as far as professionalism goes in rugby league for me. Yeah, those two sides. Probably one of the greatest rivalries of the modern era, um, particularly when you consider, you know, that both of them had grand finals against each other. Um, Manly winning 40 nil when Karen Smith ruled out the Battle of Brookvale, where we see probably the most infamous punch we've ever seen in football. Uh, boil overs, the professionalism from both teams, with that being said, though, um, probably, uh, I'm not sure, but I, I would say it will be up there with one of the greatest rivalries, if not uh, of all time in rugby league. Most definitely, we'd have to agree, in the modern era. I did a podcast the other week talking about how like certain teams dominate little pockets of time, and normally it's two to three years. I mean, these two teams... It felt like they were going head-to-head for half a decade. It's unbelievable. And whilst, you know, five years might not be that longer than two or three years, when you think about being the two dominant teams, being at the top for that long, it really is impressive that what, what these two sides did. Now, as per uh, everything we always do, I've forgotten to name our hooker as well, so I'm going to go back there. We've gone for Matty Ballon, and um, a guy that, you know, he probably doesn't have you know, the same amount of rep jerseys, the same amount of stardom as a lot of the other guys in this side. But I just thought that during that era, this guy was the rock of this team that really held them together. And I felt like no one ever spoke about him. You often mention, obviously, being part of the Cam Smith era. And I think this guy, he was stuck smack in the middle of it. He's still part of the club today. He had to leave at the end of his career to go to the West Tigers. I think he played three games there over two years or something unfortunate. But Matty Ballon, he was the glue in this team for so long, wasn't he? Yeah, and the thing is, when we look at premiership sides, you need to have role players. And Matt Ballon, at his peak, don't get me wrong, he wasn't the best hooker in the game. But what he did for the Seagulls worked. And it obviously worked because we see how successful the side is. Um, You know, you need to have role players like Matt Ballon that do not overplay their hand when you're going for premierships and you're building a dominant era like the Manly Seagulls did. He knew what his job was. 
His job wasn't to take the fast screen out of dummy half and try to grab the 20 metres. His job was to come out, you know, potentially engage the markers, get the ball to Daly Cherry Evans, and then from there, you know, you've got your Stewart brothers and your centres that we've spoken about previously and all these attacking weapons. And so Matt Bowen never overplayed his hand. He just did his job every single time he played for them. He's top 10 for the club in terms of all-time appearances um, and top six in the NRL for the... Um, in, sorry, top six appearances within the NRL for the entire NRL era. So very, very durable, um, very, very good player and always, always did his job there for the Seagulls. From 2008 to 2015, never played under 22 games of football. There's three seasons where he plays 27 games or more. Uh, Obviously won the two premierships, 2008, and in 2011 lost the 2013 grand final. I mean, if I read those sort of stats to you and a guy that... I would guess he probably played finals footy every single year of his career until he got to the Tigers, essentially. And I said to you, he played one game of rep football. You would have to know that he was a hooker and he was sitting behind Cameron Smith. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's exactly right. Another one that was in the Cameron Smith era. Um, and when you put the stats forward like that, you're absolutely right. If someone, if someone who you know isn't a footy diehard, but you presented those stats to them, you'd have to think that they would almost you know immediately recognise, well, yeah, he would have been behind Cameron Smith who dominated every rep team he played in. The only other uh, real genuine option here for Hooker, because Matt Bowen was there for so long and he was so dominant um, and consistent, was Michael Monaghan. And that's who he obviously did his study under. Um, he debuted in 2007. And then by 2008, he had a full-time role there. So Matt Bowen, an absolute staple of this manly side throughout their successful years. And again, I don't think that's a coincidence. And mate, the other option which I did consider, but I, I just couldn't—I I couldn't bring myself to do it—was the option to play uh, Jeff Tuvey at hooker in this team. He obviously played a lot of nine, but for me, I'll always look at hooker as an out. Uh, Tuvey as an out and out seven, and I think Matt Ballin—he deserves his spot in this team. Did such a good job for such a long time. Mate, let's dive into our bench. And um, as we said at the start, as the criteria per every one of these teams that we do. These teams, they need to make sense. So our general structure for our bench is uh, a utility, two middles, and then a guy that can sort of play on the edge. And our utility that we've gone for is Matt Orford. And a guy that I think, unfortunately, he's sort of forgotten in the history of rugby league to some extent. I feel like he was the halfback before Cooper Cronk in Melbourne, and then he was sort of the halfback before DCE in Manly. But... He achieved so much in his career. He was unreal for the Melbourne Storm. And then he arrived at the Manly Seagulls and probably his crowning year, 2008. Um, unbelievable. Dallium player of the year, Dallium halfback of the year. They go on to win the premiership. And I guess for Matty Orford, a very special day because not only did they win the premiership, but they beat his old club who beat him the year before in the grand final. Uh, a sensational player, Matt, Matty Orford. I mentioned earlier uh, that kick that I remember Brett Stewart scoring off and it was a fantastic nudge by Matty Orford. A guy that... I think he, he played. <clears throat> I think he played city country two or three times, not much. But outside of that, no rep football. But over two hundred games of first grade, majority for the Manly Seagulls. That's where he played his best footy. I think we had to pick him in this side, didn't we? We had to. And for Matt Alford, I was always watching his career really, really closely because um, my dad actually used to babysit him when he was a child. So dad told me that obviously when I was a kid, and that gave me keen interest to watch his career. And I think for Matt Alford, the thing to consider also was just before Melbourne and Manly both hit their successful sort of era, he was at both clubs. Yep. And I think that he did put down a bit of a foundation for both clubs, and he probably doesn't get the credit for that. Um, you have to think, before he come to Manly, their last grand final win was 1996. And obviously when they win their next one in 2008, he's the Dalian medalist. 
So I know I've said it a few times in this episode, but it's no coincidence. It's, it just isn't a coincidence that um, when he leaves Storm and he sets up the foundation, suddenly they're, they're in a very successful era. When he's at the Manly Seagulls, he starts their successful era, also winning a Dally M medal. And so when we talk about players at their absolute peak, there probably even is an argument to have Matt Orford as the seven for this Manny Seagulls team. Um, but I think it also does make sense to put him in a 14 jersey, which is where we found a home for him. Another guy, mate, that, and it's becoming a real theme throughout this, his time at Manly. Uh, he played four seasons there. He won a grand final, won the Dallium, as we said. But those four seasons, he played 26, 21, 26, and 25 games. Uh, the durability of so many of these guys. And as we said, considering they were the last of that era that it never seemed like they were taking recovery as serious as, say, the Melbourne Storm. They always seemed to be out enjoying themselves, having a giggle. It's unbelievable to think how consistently these guys were all on the field for. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it is. I think whoever was the uh, manly strength and conditioning coach around that period definitely deserves a lot of credit because he kept the boys on the park even when they did love a fear and a little bit of a party off the field and definitely well-deserved because the results were there on the field. I'll tell you what, obviously every team when they win a premiership, it looks like fun, but when those manly sides are winning, it just looked different, didn't it? Yeah, it looked like an absolute blast and that it was um, yeah, it's the sort of party you definitely want to experience at least once in your life. Mate, uh, the next guy we've picked on the bench, another one of our middles, and a really underrated guy as far as rugby league goes. Only played a handful of origins, I think two or three games, uh, but played 239 games for the Manly Seagulls. And to be honest with you, before we started making this list, if you would have said to me, how many games did Jason King play for the Manly Seagulls? I wouldn't have guessed anywhere near 240, but he debuted in 2001. He played at Manly all the way until 2014. Um, I don't think we could leave Jason King out of this side. Just an incredible player for them. A guy, 239 games to score 11 tries. Good God, that is a long innings for not many meaties. Yeah, poor Jason King. But I think when we use the term hard-nosed prop, um, you know, obviously in rugby league, when we hear that, we think of someone who's tough, durable, and does their job every week. Well, it really does sum up Jason King. You know, his peak season to his worst season were, I couldn't even tell you because he was always so consistent. He always did his job. And another thing that I think people forget about Jason King was, you know, from 2003 to 2014, he, was, he wasn't the captain of Manly. He was for a few seasons there, I believe, a co-captain with Jamie Lyon. But throughout that whole period, he was a key member of their core leadership group. And so he always led by example on the field, always got through his tackles and his meters. Um, he did achieve rep duties here. I've got in 2010 and 2011 for the Blues. It's nice to see that he was recognized at some stage of his career because he was consistent for so many years there uh, for the Manly Seagulls. And again, I just think it's really underappreciated that whilst they were so successful, he was a part of their core leadership group, setting the example and leading by example every single week. Mate, the next man on our bench, and probably a bit of a controversial one, but I just think at his peak when he was at Manly, he was just too good. A guy that could play out on the edge. You could bring him into the middle. You could use him essentially in the front row. You probably wouldn't start him at prop, but he's a perfect guy to bring off the bench. Tony Williams. Now, I think people forget that when he was at the Manly Seagulls, of course, he played for Australia during that period. Uh, he was just unstoppable. He, he played for uh, New South Wales after he left Manly, I believe. But to play for the Kangaroos when you're still at the Manly Seagulls, I think this guy has to be in the team somewhere our rule that players are selected at their peak. This sounds really, really weird, but Tony Williams at his peak is possibly, you know, I, I can't say it because he wasn't consistent enough throughout his career, but for those seasons where he was dominant, he was, you know, the, one of the best attacking weapons in our game. 
he was absolutely freakish. He's one of those players that, again, I wish he had stayed under Des Hasler at Manny there during his prime, but he opted to go to the Bulldogs on big money, and it just never suited his career. And from there, he sort of just petered out um, into obscurity. But if people cast their minds back to Tony Williams, T-Rex in his prime for Manly, um, I think he even played wing for a few games, which is mental. Um, you know, he could play wing all the way to prop, which is, there's not many people in a game that can do that. To do it, you need to be an absolute athlete. You need to possess that X factor that's off the charts. Someone like a Sonny Bill Williams. Um, and T-Rex did do that. I'm not saying he was anywhere near as consistent as someone like Sonny Bill across his career. He wasn't. But in his peak, which only lasted a year or two, T-Rex was devastating and he was the best attacking weapon in our game. Well, of course, mate, when he did arrive to the Manly Seagulls in 2009, this is when he was playing on the wing. He was playing centre. 2010, he played 25 games and scored 16 tries, but it was 2011 that he did make the move into the forwards. And, of course, uh, they won the premiership that year. Uh, the next year, he went on to represent New South Wales and the Kangaroos as well. So, uh, Tony Williams, it's, it's actually one of the picks that I, I'm not a huge fan of the criteria we've picked because I just feel like as far as career-wise, he doesn't fit in with the rest of these legends. But at his peak, I don't think we could deny him a spot realistically. Mate, uh, the next guy is a really interesting one. And I think he's one that uh, people could argue criteria-wise, maybe he shouldn't be there for what he did at the Manly Seagulls. But I just, I couldn't leave this guy out. We obviously mentioned that Matt Orford, he was at the Manly Seagulls just before they hit that unbelievably successful period. This guy, everyone that I talked to on the podcast that had something to do with Manly during this era, I remember I had Michael Witt on and he spoke so highly of Ben Kennedy. He said that without Ben Kennedy at the Manly Seagulls, you don't get the Anthony Watmo and the Glenn Stewarts that we came to know. He just completely changed the culture of the Manly Seagulls when he arrived. I think he only played two seasons there. Uh, he never he never featured in their grand final sides. He, he he retired in 06, and then they go on this unbelievable run. And I did note that the Manly Seagulls, when they named their best team of the last 50 years, of course, they included Ben Kennedy. He only played 42 games. It shows the impact that he had on this footy side. Exactly right. He arrived in 2005, and Matt Orford 2006. Now, we gave a lot of credit to Matt Orford for helping set this top side up for the golden era they went into. But Ben Kennedy is a winner. He has always been a winner, no matter where he was playing, whether it was rep footy or club for any club. Ben Kennedy is an out-and-out winner that understands the winning culture you need to bring to a club. And so when we look at him and Matt Orford arriving around the same time and Manly going onto this golden era, it doesn't surprise me. I know people will argue with this guru and say Ben Kennedy was not in his prime whilst he was at Manly Seagulls, but our perfect rebuttal for that was both years he was at the club, he was the Dalian lock of the year. So he was still the best in his position, although not his prime. And so when you put that stat forward, it's really, really difficult to leave him out of this best lineup. Yeah, I think especially Manly fans would not be pushing back on this selection. I think they all understand how important this guy was. Uh, he was also the Dallium Captain of the Year in 2006. So uh, for him to arrive there in the two years, as you said, be the best in his position those two years. I mean, you've got to remember 2005, he's still playing for the Kangaroos at that point. He's still playing for them in 06 as well. So a guy that I just simply couldn't leave out of this side. And realistically, if you said to me he should be in the starting team, I'd probably go, yeah, okay. Sure, like he's that good that I wouldn't leave him out of this side. Has to be there somewhere. Mate, 
a lot of guys that were pretty unlucky to make this side. We obviously mentioned Kieran Four, and he has to be right up there. Uh, we've got a list of guys here. Georgie Rose, Hopper Wade. I mean, a lot of controversy, but a champion player back in his day. Matty Ridge, very unlucky to miss out on this side. Guys like Terry Hill. Um, I had written down here Mark Carroll, and uh, you reminded me before we started recording, of course, Mark Carroll, he did uh, just miss out on our criteria, retired in 97. Another name that I didn't have written down um, that you mentioned, Michael Monaghan. Fuck, how good was Michael Monaghan? Yeah, he was a fantastic hooker, and, you know, he really would have been influential for Matt Bellin. You know, Matt Bellin understudied with him for just one season. From 2007, he debuted. In 2008, he was the full-time hooker. But, you know, Monaghan obviously brought such um, influence to Matt Bowen's career that he really did set him up with a platform for success and, and a platform for consistency across his entire career. Now, mate, over the next few days, we're going to dive into one that I'm really excited about. Obviously, a young club as far as rugby league goes, but potentially the most successful we've seen, the Melbourne Storm. Uh, I cannot wait to rip into this side. Yeah, the Melbourne Storm, I will preface this straight away for our listeners. Without a doubt, I think you'll agree, the hardest team we've had to do. Um, you know, our notables and people that missed out could form their own team just about. And, you know, the Storm B side, the Storm's greatest B side, could possibly be better than other teams' best A side. That's how much depth we're talking about and how many incredible champions the Melbourne Storm have had over the years. And why I'm really excited to bring that to you guys with the Guru is it's going to be one where you guys are not going to agree 1-17 to and there is going to be room for some genuine debate for changes because just putting it simply, the Melbourne Storm have just been so incredible and just had so many great players and that's really the only way you can sum it up, right? And mate, I think the other side of it is as well, there's going to be so many guys that are going to be controversial to leave out but there's also four, five, or six positions that, I mean, we didn't even have to have a conversation about who was going to play there. They were just automatics. And yes, there are champions that have missed out on that those spots as well. But there's a couple of guys that they just pick themselves and there's no conversation. It is such an interesting side to go through. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think any of our listeners right now have any, I guess, you know, guesses about which positions we're talking about. But to have, you know, players in positions that, just automatically lock themselves in. There's no argument. And that's just because they weren't just, you know, the best Melbourne Storm players that we're talking about. They were the best in the NRL, possibly the best we've ever seen in their positions. And so that's what's also so crazy about this Melbourne Storm team. It's one that I've I've got to admit, I am really, really excited to bring to the listeners. Mate, thanks for joining us once again. Had a great time going through that Manly Seagulls side. It is one hell of a team. And I'm tipping our next team, the Melbourne Storm, as we said, it's going to be one hell of a side as well. Thanks for joining us once again, brother. Really appreciate it, mate. And really appreciate all the listeners. Looking forward to bringing the Melbourne Storm to you guys.